This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the Goldman School of Public Policy Living Room. We're continuing our series of events where we interview Goldman School faculty members. I'm Henry Brady, Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. I have here with me today uh, Professor Sudashetti, who teaches and does research at our school and is also Assistant Dean for International Partnerships and Alliances. Professor Shetty does research on the Hague Convention and on domestic violence. Tell us the sort of modal situation that you deal with. What kind of circumstances have you been looking at? So my work is actually on violence against women. Mm-hmm. And about, I would say, 13 years ago when I was at Seattle University Law School, I had a mother who contacted me and said that there was this Hague petition filed against her. The Hague position. petition. Petition filed against her for taking her kids and coming back to the U.S. And she so she'd had, been in another country. She'd been in another country. She had been in Germany. And she had fled because of domestic violence and had come to Seattle and um, was now had a, a Hague petition. And I was equally shocked when she talked to me about it because I had done all this work on violence against women. I was looking at immigration, deportation of battered mothers, uh, looking at the courts, everything, and had never come across this. And so I was in total, in total darkness about what, this is, what is this Hague petition and immediately went into sort of trying to figure out what it is this mother was talking about. And she, here was a woman who was a doctor, extremely educated, uh, and was working as a doctor back again in Seattle. So it was not something that she would, you know, just make up. Mm-hmm. And so immediately went to my librarian at the law school and started to ask him about it and figured out that there was this whole convention that the U.S. had signed, which is the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of Child Abduction. And the whole idea is that there were parents, there was one parent who was fleeing with children across international borders, and we needed international protocols in place to bring the child back because it was traumatic for the child. And that makes total sense. But what we found is that more and more taking parents were actually mothers who were battered and were trying to protect the children and therefore were now fleeing international borders, going to places where they had family or would protect them because the country they were in had no protections for them. And so then there was this whole new world that opened to me. And so started to work with that mother. Um, We needed to have expert witness. And that's when we connected with Professor Jeffrey Edelson from the School of Social, uh, who's currently the dean of the School of Social Welfare. But at that time, he was at the University of Minnesota, who was doing work on impact of children on domestic violence. And that's how this whole project actually started in my research started. So the idea of the Hague Convention was that when somebody takes children across international borders, abducts them, uh, it's typically maybe because they're doing something nefarious, uh, actually kidnapping them mm-hmm. in some sense. But you found instances where it turned out that women claimed, mm-hmm. with good reason, you thought, that in fact they were leaving their husbands because mm-hmm. of domestic violence, and to put them back in that situation, which is what the Hague Convention tries to do, would be a very bad idea. Exactly. And so part of what you were trying to do with Professor Edelson was to try to get evidence as to why it was a bad idea, not just that the mother suffered, but... Uh, I mean, the piece about the whole thing was that 
The protocol was to make sure that the child was sent back to the left-behind parent, you know, to protect the child. Um, and that made total sense because we need these protocols in place. But what the end result happened was that the treaty never looked to see what the unintended consequences would be. And the unintended consequences was that if a mother wanted to protect her child and leave the country and leave the dangerous situation, she would be now charged with kidnapping. So in this particular case, the mother had fled to the U.S. She already had a case, um, a dissolution case, a divorce case that was going on. Uh, in Germany? In the U.S. She had come, US. fled with the children. She had decided to uh, get a divorce because, you know, it was such a terrible situation. You know, she was an educated woman who did not know she was being battered until she went uh, for her prenatal checkup to the doctor's office and saw a brochure and realized that she was actually a battered mother. Mm -hmm. She just thought it was, you know, in the relationship it would change and realize that. And so she had the dissolution going. And so when I met with her, I told her that we need to put the domestic violence in the dissolution papers, in the affidavit, so that we have that because it might come into context with custody when there was custody issues later. And that's generally what I've been doing with battered mothers. We look at custody orders. And, um, and so... Uh, the attorney said, no, no, we don't need to because in dissolution, it's a no-fault state in Washington, so we don't need to do that. And I said, no, we have to do that. And so that's when we decided to get an expert witness who will talk about the, and that's when we brought in Professor Edelson. And that was the only time that we used him for the case. But the, what he did was research, which is showing that it's not only obviously bad for a mother to be in a relationship with domestic violence, but that in fact has implications for the children and causes psychological damage and long-term permanent problems for them. And so that, in fact, it's more than just the woman. Yeah. It's the family that's hurt by yes. this. Yes, yes. And, and that was actually very good for us. We won the case, but the case we won on a technicality. And, you know, that's a whole big story. But what the treaty allows is that the treaty says that says it's wrong to take the child and you have to return the child back. But there are defenses that are allowed under that. And the couple of defenses that are allowed under that is one, that the child is mature and objects to going back. So, you know, he's old enough in court, 14 years, tells the court, I don't mm -hmm. want to go back. That's not the place that I think is my home. That two, we can prove that the child that was brought into the country uh, when you fled to the country and came into is now in is a habitual residence. So it's been here for a year, is well settled, gone to school, has friends, family, you know. So that's the other the thing. And the third defense, which we are working on and trying to make now part of it, is um, grave risk. And that's where Professor Adelson's research on the impact on children, we're saying, is grave risk. But judges, on the whole, have equated grave risk to Syria, where bombs are falling, or, you know, Lebanon, or these countries where children were in danger because there was no roof over their head and there was all these terrible things happening. And so, so we are now trying to say that is grave risk, but also when a child is exposed to domestic violence, it's grave risk, and there's so much social science behind it. So your Hague project has actually been writing handbooks for judges yeah. in the United States to explain to them clearly what their options are and to point out that they, in fact, should perhaps be taking into account grave yes. risks, meaning that going back to a household in which bad things are happening is not a good idea for a child. Yes, and it's a slow process. Um, what we're trying to do is, you know, because you can't tell a judge what to do, right? So what we're doing is creating these handbooks, and we have Supreme Court justices who chair our committees when we pull this together so that 
you know, there is credibility. So it's not activists who are foaming in the mouth and telling them what to do, but really judges who are looking at it. Um, so we create this whole handbook with, uh, you know, every kind of step was to look at all of these issues, look at the, uh, the amount of um, social science and evidence that we have on grave risk, how to use that, what to do, how to do that, you know. So, so let's, let's change the topic just slightly, which is you grew up in India and you know a lot about India and about other parts of the world. Tell us a bit about the problems women are facing with respect to domestic abuse and the kinds of psychology that leads them, because you mentioned earlier that, that the woman that you were talking about hadn't realized that she was being abused. Tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, you know, you know domestic violence, if you look uh, pretty much all over the world, is about power and control. Mm-hmm. So it is somebody who's exerting power. So the man who beats up his wife at home doesn't beat up his co- co-workers at work, mm-hmm. even if, they, if he feels powerless there. So essentially, it's about who we can control, right? And so he uses his fist or he uses financial manipulations or, you know, women that I have worked with, I have worked with such educated women, but they are dependent on their husband because of their visa status in the U.S. So, you know, if you have somebody who comes here on an H-1 visa, which is a work visa, they are dependent, you know, their wife is a dependent on that. She cannot work, cannot go to school, so she's at home. So here you have a woman who might have a doctorate, who might have a master's, who's not working, who's stuck at home in the apartment. Um, And he controls her. He controls he won't allow her to drive. I've known cases where they don't allow them to drive, control all the finances, gives her just the right amount of money to go to the grocery store, uh, tells her what to do, when to do it, monitors the phone. I even had a case where this man used to unhook the phone from the house and carry it to work so she wouldn't make calls to anybody and he could monitor her calls. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of people. And I it's just amazing. But really and truly, it's about power and control and how we control people. We control them either by making sure they don't have enough money or they, we control them by not giving them enough food. We control them by not making them see relatives. We control them by not allowing them to go places or get educated. That's what it is. And in most of the cases, even for women who are educated, they don't know where to go to seek help, right? I mean, the only option in the U.S. or anywhere in a lot of the other countries, we don't even have that option. In the U.S., it's to go leave the house and go to a shelter, you go to a shelter and you share it with many other women. If you've got children, you've got to drag your kids there. You know, it's a very difficult choice for women to make. Um, and jobs are not just handy and available for them. And so, so it's an uphill battle. So you and Professor Adelson did a video piece where you uh, criticized the National Football League. You said the National Football League fumbles uh, with respect to how they dealt with Ray Rice and some other players who had domestic violence issues. And that was a very interesting video because on the one hand, you said, of course, this behavior is completely unacceptable. But on the other hand, you said that the sort of initially uh, rather limited approach of the NFL was not enough, but ultimately the very draconian approach they took in the end was a bad idea. Say more about that. How can we deal with these problems better? I mean, I think, you know, when we first, when I first started to do the work in Seattle, uh, it was very interesting because um, it was a group of, it was two men who actually came to me and said, Suda, we need you to start looking at this issue in the South Asian community. Um, and, you know, I looked at these two guys, one was Native American and another one was Indian. You know, there was these two men and I was looked at them and I said, are you out of your mind? There's no way I'm going to be doing this because 
the moment I start to talk about domestic violence in my South Asian community, I become a pariah because the South Asians are a model minority community. You know, we are doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, we are professors. We don't have these kinds of issues. You know, we are smart, we're brilliant, and we are in Palo Alto, and we are Silicon Valley, you know. So I knew what would happen to me if I raised the voice, but they said, no, there is nobody else. You need to take this on. And so I brought a group of women, and we decided that, yes, we should do this. So we decided, so I, we named it, we called it Chaya, Chaya means shade. And uh, then we decided to talk to every South Asian organization that has hosts these public events, you know, dance and Independence Day and New Year's Day, they have all these different events. And we thought we will have a little table and, talk, you know, put little brochures about what we offer a service for battered mothers. And every one of those are actually, most of the time, at least until then, when I was there, were led by men. They were the lead you know, the CEOs or chairs of these nonprofit organizations. And we approached them, they'd say, oh, Suda, so sorry, our agenda is full. We can't, you know, we'll come back next month. We'll talk to you. Or, oh, no, all the tables have been taken. You know, we don't have room for you to put that in there. So sorry. But next year we will definitely do that. So then I decided, you know, I'm not going to let them stop me. So we took our brochure and I made it into little business-sized cards and went into the women's bathroom when we had the organization events and put them in the women's bathroom because the men couldn't come there. Mm -hmm. So women would take, and then the phone never stopped ringing. And we essentially, that's how we got started to do the work. Then the mayor's office got involved with us. And then there was the Violence Against Women Stop Grant that came in. They said, we will fund you to get the work started. Mm -hmm. And we partnered with mainstream agencies. And that's how we started. To and do so the this work. problem Exists. was there, there. in yes. that community as it is in every community. Exactly. Yes. It's only when we have resources to help them, then the numbers become visible and we can talk about it. Same thing with the NFL, coming back to the NFL. It's only when it became public that we know that the problem exists, right? Most of the time, those women won't talk because their husbands are in such, you know, uh, in the public eye so much. They're afraid that if they go public, what would be the impact of him losing his, you know, opportunity. Most of the time they come from very poor backgrounds. You know, they've made it all the way there. They're taking care of kids. They're taking care of extended families. They're trying to do all of these things and beating their wives at the same time, right? They're doing a lot of good, but they're also controlling their wives. So then the women feel the burden of protecting what, you know, everything else he's doing compared to what he's beating her seems so much greater than that. And I can take this beating because he's taking care of my kids, he's taking care of my family, he's taking care of his family, he's taking care of the community. So women generally will not speak up or come public because they think of all the other things that are associated and the impact it has. Yeah. And I think it's the same with the NFL. There is a lot to lose for that family. Right. And so what it would be really good is for the NFL to say, you know, come and speak to us. We will create, give him, you know, treatment. He will work with a therapist or, you know, we will, he can go to anger management. He can go to domestic violence, uh, batteries intervention program, because I think people can change. And I think if the man understands that the impact of his abuse and beating his wife has on his kids and that what it could do to them later, mm -hmm. he would stop because he doesn't want that to continue for the rest. Of it. But it is about power and control. And if kids see that, that's the only way they understand relationships then. So we have to stop it, you know. How successful do you think this generally is in actually changing behavior? You said you think people can change. And so presumably you've seen cases where that's happened. But do you think that's very common or is it just 
awfully hard or it just depends? Um, I mean, I think all of us can change, but we have to have the desire to change. And I think the desire for me to change into something else is you have to show me the purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, why my changing that behavior is beneficial, you know, and I think we have to make that connection. Yes, there are men who age out of it, you know, as they get older, they stop doing that, you know, so we have that. Um, I think there are younger men who, because they have seen this behavior in their own families before, you know, some of them continue to do it. Some of them, depending on the support systems that they have, actually don't even become batterers, you know, even if their father was one. So it all depends on the nurturing environment that we create for kids. So even if you have kids here whose parents were batterers, but if there's a nurturing environment, they have mentors in their life and, you know, they stop doing that. So I think that the more we talk about it, the more we educate people and the more we include students in the research around this area, the less it will happen. But I think generally we humans are born to power and control, you know, to have power and to control others. And I think trying to move that into a more productive way, I think, would be the way for us. To so it's, it's a tough problem. It is a tough problem. It's a very tough problem. So you do more generally work internationally uh, with people who come here and we offer various courses. Tell us about what you think is happening internationally in terms of of a better understanding of the place of women in the workplace? Because I know one of the things you emphasize in many of the programs you run, and they're often all males, not always, but often. Majority. Trying to explain to them how they can do a better job of making sure there's not sexual harassment and that women have a fair chance to advance in those institutions that they run and so forth. Tell us about that. How, how do you feel about progress along those lines? I mean, it's interesting because, like you said, majority of our government officials who come are men, you know, and I think they find it very interesting to see me stand in front of them, too, you know, so I think. Um, and I also think that you allowing me to stand in front of them and sort of be the face of the Goldman School is really good because that allows them to realize that women can take this position. And because I'm in sort of that position, I can push the gender lens, mm-hmm. you know, towards them. And so. I've seen you do it. You're quite emphatic about it in a way that's both very endearing in a way, but also quite yeah. clear. This is not the kind of acceptable behaviors. You have to make sure you don't do these things. And, you know, part of it is, I guess, I'm now old and so I can say those things and get away with it, right? I also know that when I say those things, you're not going to come cracking on me because I know how you think and you believe it's right. And I think so, given my context, I think I am free to say those things. So I actually appreciate that I am in an environment that I can do so because I do know that in certain environments, I probably wouldn't be able to speak as Mm -hmm. openly and honestly. Mm-hmm. as I do. Um, what I love is when I take them on a campus tour and I can actually put the gender lens on a lot of the things, you know, where women have started, you know, the School of Social Welfare started by a woman, the School of Business was started by a woman, women gave money for the Say the Gate, you know, for the Campanile. Um, so all these, you know, it was a woman who gave the design, you know, designed the campus, gave the money, Phoebe, you know, the Hearst, you know. So Phoebe Aberson Hearst is a very exactly, important exactly. contributor to this campus. Exactly. And one of the founders, really, of it. So I just love that because that sets the tone. Because I concluded by saying, give women the money and the community benefits. You know, so that's how I started off as. And then we lead to other things. And I'm always pushing it. So even when we have 
lecturers that are teaching the subject, I always put the gender lens and say, you know, what is the impact on women? You know, so when we're looking at energy or we're looking at ethics and governance and all of those things. So I do do that. So it's really, um, I think it's important for us as a school that is involved in policy to push the gender lens because sometimes we're so mired in the issue that we don't see the unintended consequences that can, can have on women or children or girls, you know. And so I think pushing that in the forefront is very critical. In general, how do you think other countries are dealing with this? Uh, India has, for example, a terrible problem with respect to rape. Uh, that There's some terrible, hideous incidents in the last few years. Are they making progress along these lines, finding ways to improve the situation? I mean, I think rape in itself is hideous, and I think we have terrible... Um, I think that happens even in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think what in India they're struggling with is the accountability piece. So when it does come out in the, you know, there is no accountability. The, the judicial system takes such a long time to bring justice, you know, it takes 10 years so, or 15 years. You know, in the meantime, evidence is lost, you know. So I think they're struggling with sort of how to make sure that we can actually see justice done, you know, and that it's not dependent on who you know and how, you know, and stuff. And because it takes so much time, there is so much time to lose things or things to go missing or people to die, you know, all of those things. And I think that was an issue that the U.S. had before. And we have become much better a country, you know, in terms of that. Um, India is getting ready to sign the Hague Treaty, and they are actually doing a really good job in pushing the gender lens and making sure that women are protected. Japan was the first one to do it, and in fact, I went over to Japan to help them do that. And um, they're the first country to sign the, legis uh, the convention, making sure that battered mothers are protected. Mm -hmm. You know, and now India will be the second. And I think so. There is a movement to change the convention yes. to actually bring yes. into yes. Uh, part of the. Yes. requirements yes. are thinking about the yes. battered women yes. and domestic violence problem. Yes. And you know, and the thing is that nobody was thinking about this. It took me 10 years and finally the Department of Justice actually made it as part of the RFP when they gave out the grant. That's how we received the grant to do the work. Uh, so we are now part of their grant cycle. Um, I also lobbied with the National Institute of Justice to give me a grant because in order for me to even say this is an issue, I needed to have research and evidence to show that these women were being impacted. And so when the National Institute of Justice finally gave the grant, I brought the University of Minnesota and the University of Washington to, uh, to professors to actually do research. So that was Professor Edelson and Professor Taryn Lindhorst. The book that they wrote won a social uh, work award, you know, because it was so amazing. And so now that movement has led to actually a conversation happening in London this fall, bringing in people who are going to talk about making the change at The Hague. So in some way, I feel very proud being here that we are in some way contributing to making that change happen, you know, and protecting mothers and children. Do you feel optimistic that we're making progress on these issues? I mean, it seems some of the stories that we keep finding out about are just horrible and it's terrible the way some women have been treated and continue to be treated. Do you have a sense throughout the arc of your long involvement in this that things are getting better and people are starting to improve? I mean, you know, I just look at the Hague and it took me, you know, now it's 11 or 12 years since I've been doing this work. When I started, nobody knew anything about it. My librarian at the law school, when I told him you're going to change the treaty, he said, Suda, that's not going to be possible, you know. I mean, he told me outright, he said, there are 82 countries signed on at this time. All 82 countries are not going to listen to you, you know, is what he told me. And so then I decided that we have to look at the implementing legislation, which is the U.S. legislation. So there's movement to change it here. But now to think, 
The Office of Violence Against Women has put it in the RFP. It's becoming a national, you know, international issue now that people are talking about it. The Singapore uh, Supreme Court Justice asked us to give us the, our bench guide because he's going to create it for the ASEAN countries. So, you know, in some way, even if we can change few judges at a time, I feel like, you know, who will listen to this and take it into consideration, mm-hmm. we're making change. And we have to be optimistic because if you're not optimistic, I don't see how we can get up the next morning, right? Well, certainly your own personal odyssey, which is not the place to get into that, but I know that you had difficult early period, and so you yourself know about these issues firsthand and the difficulties that they... How does that inform how you just think about these issues? Is it a very personal thing to to you, for you? I mean, yeah, it is because, you know, I grew up with um, the untouchable cast, you know, cast. And I grew up with my grandmother telling me I could not play with certain kids because they were untouchable kids. Um, But I also grew up with a great grandmother who was very strong, who believed that everybody Mm -hmm. should be educated. And she gave up. She traded land to bring a nurse into the villages because there was no nurse. Children were dying in childbirth. She traded land to bring a teacher, and we had a one-room classroom in our ancestral village, which went from grade one to grade eight. And, you know, and I watched her, and I would follow her everywhere, and I think I embody her because my grandmother, on the other hand, was amazing. She was a great businesswoman. She knew how to make money, and she knew how to get all the stuff from the farmers and she made the grass grow. You know, she did all of those things, but she never had the heart. Whereas my grand, great-grandmother on the heart, other hand had the heart, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I, you know, I was beaten a lot when I was young because I used to play with the untouchable kids. I would come back into the house and I was immediately contaminating everything. And so I would get beaten and I had to go take a shower and come back in, you know, and I would do that five, six times a day. But... They were kids, and I was a kid, and, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted it. And I also have a rebellious streak. If somebody says no, I try to figure out a different way to get it yes. done, you know. I, I can say that you're certainly a person that if somebody says no, you try to make sure that, in fact, you overcome whatever the odds are. <laughs> find a different way to do it. No, and right? you, you, are, you are fabulous at it because you do it with such elan and with such uh, ingenuity. <laughs> uh, it's not brute force in your case. It's, it's really subtle and, and figuring out the way to make it happen. Uh, that I think is really quite an achievement. So, I don't think my father would agree with you okay, because my no. father was terrified that I would do things that would put his, you know, black in his face, yes. you know. Well, but this is part of the problem is getting away from the notion that honor has a particular cast to it, that, that the role of women has to be a particular role and understanding that there may be multiple roles that women can play and all of them are honorable ultimately. And I think there's no question that, at least in my mind, you bring great honor to the, the Goldman School and I think to your family as well. And they should be very proud of all the extraordinary things you've done. Well, so thank you. you. Know, because I've had some really wonderful mentors along the way. And you know, I certainly have to say that you know, I didn't know how long I'd be at the Goldman School. But truly, it has been the fact that you've allowed me to thrive and do what I want to do, knowing that, trusting that I've forward the mission of the school has been really wonderful. And you've done that. And I thank you so very much. So thank you. Thank you, Dean Brady.